We are talking about how do you raise relational teams in a screen-driven world. So technology is here to stay. It's not like we're going to leave this conference and then all of a sudden, poof, all these things will disappear and we'll start writing on paper again. That's not going to happen. And as time goes forward, we are going to become more and more integrated with machines and with technology in the years ahead. So what we're, we're not talking about, this is not an anti-technology type of talk, but it is a cautionary <laughs> technology kind of talk, both for us as users and also as people who are influencing either our family or the families of our church. What does it mean to be a relational teen? This is the kind of teen that can look you in the eye, who is comfortable talking, even if they feel shy by nature or introverted, that they can look at you, they can smile, they can respond, they can read facial cues and understand, whoa, she's about to explode. <laughs> you know that they can read these things. And unfortunately, these kinds of skills that seem kind of basic, when you meet a teenager that's like, hot, like the teens I've met in the halls, to, you know, yesterday and today. And they say, nice to meet you. And they look you in the eye and they shake your hand. You're like, oh, this is an amazing teenager. And all they've done is look at you and shake their hand. So we will go to restaurants. We used to go, you know, when my kids were younger, let's say elementary school, junior high, and they would simply say thank you to the waiter or the waitress. That's all they did. It's like, thank you. You put down the food and they'd say, thank you. And the waiter or waitress would be like, you have such good children. And it was like, is the bar so low that all they have to do is look at you and say thank you, and you think my kids are amazing. So yesterday I showed some funny pictures of my daughter Lucy. I brought you another crazy hair picture. So when she was a baby, she was born with all this hair, and it just stuck out everywhere. And this was a particularly good idea. So And so what would happen is, people would look at Lucy, like wherever she went, they'd see that big hair, they'd laugh about it, they'd comment about it. All eyes were on the baby, and rightfully so. But as Lucy grows up, right, she doesn't require so much attention. And when we first get our phones, right, do you remember the first time, your first smartphone? your first baby. So we take our smartphone and we clothe it. I've got avocados on mine. We feed it. We make sure it has enough power. We crave it. Did you say something? Notification? Oh, someone, someone's texting me. You know, we, we think, oh my goodness, we're five feet away from the baby. Got to get the baby. You know, so we have this new digital baby. Teenagers have it. Kids are growing more and more to have them. We adults have them. And it's really important for us to realize, no, 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 our eyes need to be on the real people, the real babies in our lives. So as adults, for us to realize, stop looking at your phone. Look at your child or a student as they're talking to you. Look at them, you know. And for teenagers also to learn that, wait a minute, there are things more important than this baby. Because kids now, what are they doing? They're looking at the phone all the time, and so are adults. This is, you know, no one is exempt from this talk. And I promise you, I am just as guilty as any of us, so I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. This does not discriminate against age. You can be two, you can be 82, and you can be looking at this all the time. I, I remember talking to a grandma and she said, I just cannot stop watching quilting videos. <laughs> and she does I just watch them for hours and I know I'm wasting so much time. So my daughter Lucy, she is entering high school this year. 
And this summer, she had two of her friends over. So Lucy does not have a phone, but her two girls have a phone. And when she wants to talk to her friends, she uses my phone to text them. It works out really well. So both of her friends came over. They're good girls. You know, they're not, they're nice girls. They're sweet girls. They're fun girls. They came in with their phones, no problem. I didn't even think to say, let me collect everybody's phone. And, you know, because I really didn't think it was going to be a problem. It's good girls. Well, Lucy was telling me, so they were over for several hours and they were baking cookies and like, you know, jumping on trampoline and taking the dog for a walk and it was all fun. But Lucy said, I kind of wish you would have taken their phones, mom, because whenever there was like downtime or like an in-between time, they both like just started looking down and like scrolling on social media. And Lucy was like, uh, this is kind of boring, you know? And so if in such a, it's such a scenario where you've already handpicked friends <laughs> that you are close to, they have a relationship with, right? And in that scenario, if you know they haven't seen each other all summer, and now is the time that they're seeing each other just for a few hours, and yet why are we not relational? Why are we not more relational? And part of it is habit. A lot of it is habit. So kids today, Kids today, there we go, kids today, age eight to 10, they're spending six hours a day with a tablet, with a phone. Age 11 to 14, they're spending nine hours a day with some kind of uh, screen device and 15 to 17, seven and a half hours a day. This is a lot of time. And so they define being relational as reaching out to someone on their phone. And that could just be looking at their Instagram. It doesn't even have to be like a direct message or a text, but that's the definition of being relational. And we know this is not the definition of being relational. So Adam Alter is a behavioral um, psychologist out of New York University, and he's written some wonderful um, books and different things. And he talks about asking his students, he did this survey, and he gave his college students this choice. Would you rather have a bone broken in your hand or would you rather have your phone drop and shatter, right? So would you rather have your bone broken? Go ahead and raise your hand if you'd rather have your bone broken. Would you rather have your phone fall to the ground and shatter? Okay, I know there are a few of you who take who would say the bone will reset. Well, that is what, so 45% to 50% of teenagers said, I would rather have my, my bone broken than to lose my phone because it would be my social connection. There were follow-up questions. Will I still be, which hand is, is the finger broken on? Can I still use my phone with that broken finger? Because if, if I can't use my phone, then that'd be the deal breaker. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing. So he was very entertained and concerned by these follow-up questions. So one out of two kids, because they say, you know, that's gonna heal up, but I'd lose all that time on my phone, on my connection. And so if we're thinking about how do we raise relational teenagers out of our homes, out of our churches, that are going to be the leaders of tomorrow, how do we help them to prioritize a real person, flesh and blood? And I tell you what, in this age where, where AI is just gonna really just shoot up in the next 20 years, it's more important than ever in our lifetime to help people understand that's a human and we put priority on that human as made in the image of God versus this machine. What are kids getting used to? I don't talk to humans anymore. I just use my machine. Where is that going to lead to in several years, right? So these are really causes for us to say, okay, 
is very important for us to be proactive in our families and in our churches to help people be relational with people instead of just relational with their phone. Now, can the phone be used to be relational with people? Of course. You can use the phone to text a friend and say, please come over. You can use a phone to take a video of a special moment and then relive that moment five years from now. That, that's, you can do that. That's a digital vegetable, as we talked about. But most kids and adults, we are having digital candy, which is YouTube, social media, all these things. Um, one, I think it was, Dr. Michael Gehan, he's a, a great scientist, but he talks about the triumph of the trivial. That is the triumph of the trivial. And so much of our time, both as adults and especially as kids and teenagers, yeah, you're abused. Yeah, you're out of my hair. Yes, you're in my home, so I know you're not like being abducted by aliens uh, down the street, but you are what's happening, the triumph of the trivial. And they're growing up thinking, Where's the meaning in life? Because they've just been filled with all this trivial. And you know, as believers, God has called us to so much more, so much more. And so we've got to kind of get that in our hearts that we don't want our children to have nomophobia. What in the world is nomophobia? And I hope I don't catch it, right? So nomophobia is the fear of not being with your cell phone. So it's when you leave it at home and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? So Iowa State University coined this term and they took the survey to find out how many people have nomophobia. So see how you do and see how the kids in your life would do. I would be annoyed if I could not look up information on my phone when I wanted to. If I didn't have my phone with me, I'd feel anxious because I couldn't instantly communicate with my friends. I'd feel weird because I wouldn't know what to do. I'd feel dumb like in a situation if I couldn't just like, oh, okay, nothing's happening, I feel awkward, and down we go, right? So 58% of men said they had this nomophobia and 47% of women. It's kind of surprising because I would think that women would have it more than men, but it just shows you both. You know, stereotypically, it's the woman that's like this, me, 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 and the husband's like, excuse me, you know, but it really goes both ways. So we've got to understand that if this is the case, if men and women have this nomophobia, the fear of being without their phone, I want us to have more the fear of no more family phobia. In other words, my family's gone. I don't have a family anymore because we are all under the same roof, but we are all with our little devices. Right? Mom's watching this channel, dad's looking at the news, kid one is on a video game, kid two's got earbuds in, kid three, maybe they're intellectual, they're listening to a podcast, you know, but everybody's doing their own thing. And no more family phobia. The connection is no longer between the siblings, between the parents together, the husband and wife together, and then the parents and children together because we are more connected to this. Think of the time that we spend, right? When we were, if you're married, you remember when you were dating, how much time you spent and how you could just look at your spouse for like hours. You know, I remember my husband and I, we could just, when we're dating, we just look at each other for like a really long time. And now after almost 25 years of marriage, if you looked at me, I'd be like, what, what? Do I have like something in my hair? Like what's happening, right? We're just not used to that. And so we've got to think, how can we be more relational, model that at home, and then let's take that out to the world. So I'm gonna talk and touch on the five A plus skills 
that are in the book Screen Kids. Many of you received the book Screen Kids as a generous gift from Randall House at the session last night. So in the book, Dr. Gary Chapman and I wrote about Screen Kids. We're gonna go more, not today in this seminar, unfortunately, but there's more of the brain science of what's happening in the brain when kids are on screens. But today, the focus of today is this relationship. So you all know about A pluses in school. You gotta get good grades so you can get in a Duke, like you gotta do these things, you know. But more important than grades are these A-plus skills. If you have a child or a grandchild or kids coming through your youth group that are affectionate, appreciative, they know how to manage their anger, they know how to apologize, and they can pay attention, guess what? They are going to be the rarity that the waitress or the waiter's gonna be like, whoa, how did you make such an amazing teenager? So let's, I'm gonna just shortly touch on each one of these. So affection, C.S. Lewis said that affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. If we are loved, why are teens in such trouble? Why are one in four girls, uh, teenagers, thinking of suicide? Like we have to ask, what is the uptick? Okay, social media is, is a huge part of that, but why? It's because the, that love is empty. That love tank is empty. It, it, there's no reserve there. It's not being spoken in the home. And so for what we have to think, how do we equip the people in our home and the families in our church to be speaking these love languages? Many of you are familiar with Dr. Gary Chapman's love languages. My daughter, Lucy, with that big hair, I knew very early on that her love language was touch because she'd come into my room with her big hair and she'd say, huggy, huggy, as soon as she could learn how to talk, right? And you know, you're like, go back to sleepy, go back to sleepy. You know, she'd come in at 6 a.m., huggy, huggy. So we gave her a hug and that was her love language. She just loves that physical touch. And for a lot of kids who have physical touch as their love language, how do they feel that in the day? They feel that snuggling up to a mom or dad and reading a book at night. Right? They feel that with you hugging them, with you putting your, your hand through their hair as they get older, with you wrestling with them. Well, what happens when kids get these? Usually when your son is playing a video game, you as a mom or a dad aren't like, oh, let me snuggle up next to my kid. <laughs> let me put my arm around him and watch this video game together and sit with him for 10 minutes. That's not what we do. We say, oh, good. You're on your game, you run the opposite direction and you get stuff done while they're on the game. And before you know it, the whole day has gone by and you've really not sat next to your kid for a concentrate. And this, I'm not talking about sitting next to your kid for five hours, but you know, five minutes that you've sat together and you've read a book together or you've done a puzzle together or you've talked together. And so the love languages, you can see how each of the love languages words, right? When a TV is on in the background, they've done studies um, with kids that they learn language much faster when there's not a TV in the background, even if it's educational TV, why? Because the parent is talking to them the whole time. Oh, what are you doing? That's a ball, good job. Oh, are you gonna throw the ball? Throw it to me. They're talking the whole time. And so if your love language, your child's love language is words, and you've got the screen either holding it or a TV on in the background, what's happening? Nobody's talking, right? So technology touches all these different love languages. And if a kid does not feel loved, then they have that hole. They have, you can look this up on YouTube, look up still face experiment, still face experiment. And this Harvard researcher takes a mom and a baby, 
and the baby like goes ah, and the mom goes ah, and the baby points up, and the mom looks oh. So the mom is mirroring, you know, everything the baby does, and it's very nice, very interaction. Then they instruct the mom to just completely be still, not to make any expression. So the baby goes oh, and the mom is just. And the baby points up, and the mom is, and the baby becomes very agitated, like, why aren't you playing this game? I want my mom back. Why aren't you playing the game? And the baby starts crying. Right, and the mom is instructed not to do anything, right? And then finally, that they tell her you can hug the baby, and she's like, oh, poor baby, and she goes crazy and everything. But it was shown in such a visceral way that the way we respond to our kids, it matters. And guess what a lot of society is, right? It's this, it's this. And if I gave you this whole talk, every single word, like I've said in the last few minutes, but I just looked down like this, you'd be like, okay, this is not very effective. She is definitely checking her email, which I did just do, right? So it's totally different. Like you're not responding back if you are still face. And a lot of us as adults, we get busy. And then if you look down at your phone while your kid talks to you, it's okay. Like, please be free. <laughs> Don't be guilty. We all do this. But if you habitually are looking down when your child comes up to you or your husband comes up to you or even your coworker or someone at church, anybody, and this is your habit, this is no response. And that's what is breaking down. Then there's no relationship there. So I might as well go talk to a robot because a robot will actually look at me, you know? So we've got to differentiate ourselves to say, oh no, I'm going to look up at you. So a great move is the pivot. So when I was writing um, my first book, it was the predecessor to Screen Kids about screens called Growing Up Social. And then we revised it you know, six years later and then retitled it Screen Kids. So when I'm writing Growing Up Social, my kids are like, oh, that's so funny. You're writing Growing Up Social and you're typing on a computer. But of course, how else am I going to do that? I'm not going to do it longhand on papyrus. I'm going to do that. So I had to figure out, I had to have work hours so they knew, okay, these are mommy's work hours. And then I work in a loft upstairs. And so when I hear the footsteps, right, of, of Big Hair Lucy coming up the stairs, I realized I need to pivot Hey, and beat her. Like she's coming up the stairs and I'm like this. And, oh, Lucy, how was your day? Do you need anything from me? Yeah, mom, I'm wondering where this is. Okay, that's down in the laundry room. Okay, see you in a little bit and I go back. It's a very lovely interaction. It's fine. Pivot away from the device. You're here. What do you need? What can I help you with? Great. Da 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 da. I need five more minutes here. Okay, see you later. Versus, right, Lucy coming in. What do you need, Lucy? Yeah, okay, well that's, that's in the laundry room, buddy. Okay, bye, you know. It's a completely different experience, but it's the exact same time and effort. So kind of put it in your heart that if a human being enters your space, you just like kind of knee jerk, like I was in that talk and I'm trying to be relational. And so I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna, you know, I still might have to do something, but I might pop up and say, oh yeah, what, what is it? Okay, great answer the question, I gotta finish this, this text and I'll be right with you, and then really finish the text and really get back to whoever it is that you're talking to. So this is how we show affection to each other. The next one is appreciation. So how do we teach kids to be thankful? Because what, what is this next generation known for? Entitlement, you owe me, I have a right. You have a right 
as an eight-year-old for me to buy you a $1,000 phone so you can keep up with your friends? That is your right? So there needs to be kind of like an indignance for, for adults to say, why would I give like a $300 item to a four-year-old? Like, are they really gonna take care of that item? And so when a child has to wait for a device, when a child has to earn money for a device, they will take care of it much more and it's a great lesson to teach them to wait so they actually appreciate what they are getting. So I have a friend who gave a laptop to their high schooler, what did they do? They lost it. They kind of learned that lesson. And so the second child, they were like, you have to pay 50%. And what happened when that child had to pay 50%? They kept it so pristine. They like had a little case for it. They knew exactly where it was because they understood the value. So we need to teach our people, no, 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 you don't have to give in to every whim that your children want, the tantrums that they throw. We don't give in to that because what does that teach them? Oh, I can get whatever I want. And I never have to say thank you, and I never have to wait. And that's why we see all this ugliness of ingratitude in our nation. Gratitude is such a, a, a foundation to good relationships, is being grateful instead of being resentful, and you owe me and all this. Who wants to be with that, right? So grateful. Why, what, what is it though about technology? In technology, when your kid has an iPad, your kid has a video game, they are the king or queen of that domain. They can do whatever they want. This show is boring, I'm gonna get another show. I don't like this person, I'm just gonna block them. This thing, what's happening? It's not loading fast enough. You know, it took 10 seconds, right? So it used to be you have to go to the library, right? And you're like, link and link and link and link. And you know, those of you old enough to know there used to be little index cards and you'd pick it out and then you go to the library and take the book and you'd find out the fact. I mean, it took a long time. Now they say, I'm not gonna do it because she will actually answer, but she'll say, hey, you know who? Who is Abraham Lincoln? And then it will tell you. So they never have to wait for anything. They don't have to earn anything. They have endless choices. And it's like, your job is to amuse me. And when you stop amusing me, I'm gonna let you know. And if that's not ingratitude, I'm not sure what is. So we've gotta get back to delaying that device so they understand, no, there are no choices. Like when you have a preschooler, I, I'm, this is not a cafe with 50 items. We, we serve one item, and if you don't want it, you can go hungry. It's that mindset that helps a child appreciate what they have, and it's something that we're really lacking right now. So anger, right? Kids are getting, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but you know like, oh, my child was so nice. <laughs> and then they started playing this certain video game and they became so angry, like what happened to them? They have all these different things where the mom or dad like cuts off the video game and then the kid turns into a monster and yells at the parent. Maybe this is not like a video to you. Maybe you've seen this in your own house, right? And so if there are games that you're seeing, man, this makes my kid angry, then guess what? You can advise the people in your church. You can to yourself say, we're gonna take a break from this game because it's making you really angry and it's hurting you and we're gonna take it away. Now, are they gonna all of a sudden turn into a sheep and a lamb? No, probably <laughs> the lion's gonna come out. But that's where us as adults, we're the ones who have to be like, no, I will be like set like concrete, like you will not move me. And when they're angry towards us, first a gentle answer, right? Turns away that wrath. 
for us to kind of practice in our mind, if we know we're gonna have a talk with a teenager or a kid or someone in our youth group that, hey, we're gonna to need to take this away, we're gonna to need to dial back, you can already imagine a lot of anger is gonna come your way. So even picture it, they're gonna yell at me, they're gonna cuss at me, they're gonna slam the door, they're gonna not talk to me for seven days. Like, it's okay, like kind of like, kind of like give yourself a, 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 like a locker room talk and then say, you know what, when that anger comes, I'm not gonna be angry back. I'm just gonna listen and then say, hey, you know what? Because they're gonna, when you're angry, it's either gonna come out in words, all this verbal abuse, or it's gonna come out in behavior. You're gonna wanna hit something, whatever. So it could be, hey, I know you're really mad. This is not the right time to talk. You know, why don't you go take a run around the block or just run through our, <laughs> just, you know, get a punching bag, whatever you wanna do, and then we'll talk about this in, in 15 minutes. You know, so just know that anger management is something that kids need to learn. Because what's happening is, I was talking to an owner of a Panera Bread, and they were saying, it's so strange, I've had this restaurant for 30 years. And it used to be when families came in and siblings started fighting, and that like was like clockwork, every family, that's like three, two, one, and fight. He said it used to be that those siblings would have to work it out. They have to figure out some kind of truce, and they'd have to get, get through it. But he said, today, they don't do that. The minute the kids start getting kind of weird, they're everyone, okay, here you go, here you go, here you go. And then it's like temporary, and then they, oh, like this. They, phew, thank God for the iPad. But what are those kids not learning? They don't know, when I get mad, how do I manage that? How do I reconcile, how do I figure out, is this me just being a baby, or was there really an injustice? Like, how do they figure that out? It's through practice at Panera Bread, but it's not happening. So anger management. And then apology is in person, that a child would be able to say the words, I did wrong, I'm sorry. What are we, what is the culture, which is, there is a cultural war happening on our smartphones in terms of what is being pushed to our kids and what is the content is being pushed is you are a victim. You did not do anything wrong, you're a victim. And if they hadn't done this to you, you wouldn't be in this situation. And you have every right to be angry. You ever, you're a victim, you're a victim. That's what they're doing, I'm a victim. Victim, look what they did to me. Look what he did to me. Look what she did to me. And guess what? You're, you're never going to apologize. Why would you need to apologize? You're the victim. But how do you repair a relationship? Because we're all going to do wrong things. We repair a relationship by saying, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I lost my temper. I stole the gum. I stepped on her thing and broke it on purpose. You know, that's how you repair the relationship is through apology. And kids don't learn that. They're not taught that. And then social media, if something wrong happens, instead of going to the person, let's say, and trying to repair it, what do they do? They like do ugly things on social media and then just gets worse and worse and worse. And they never even talk to each other. And then they just decide never to be friends again. And so how do we do this? We model apology. And Dr. Chapman, he, you know he loves the number five. So he's got the five languages of apology. And he has a whole book about this, the languages of apology. Because sometimes you know how like kids say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you're like, you never, you didn't even mean that, right? So this is how, and families, we can be the ones to model this. So let's say we've given a phone and we regret it. It was too soon. Or maybe a video game played or a social media app and we regret it. So we begin with, you know, child of mine, I'm sorry. I gave you that phone because I thought you were ready. I, you, I know you really wanted it. I didn't want you to feel left out. 
I'm sorry. And then we admit, we take responsibility. I was wrong to do that. I didn't, I didn't really know, I'm trying to figure it out, but I'm the responsible person that's supposed to take care of you and I was wrong. So we say we're sorry, we admit what we've done, and then we try to make restitution. You know, how can I make this right? The way I'm gonna make it right for you is I'm gonna start protecting you. I know it's not popular, I know you're not gonna like this, but we're gonna collect your phone and I'm gonna give you a dumb phone instead that, you know, and the Gab wireless phone is one that I recommend and it can text, take pictures, have GPS, do music, but it does not go on the internet. So it only does those things. But think of what does a child need it for? To text, just let you know where it's there, GPS, you can find them to listen to music and text their friends. It's done, take pictures, it's done. So gab, G-A-B-B, wireless.com. Sorry, I should have written this down for you, but Arlene, use my name and you'll get a discount, Gab Wireless. So what can I do to make it right? I'm gonna get you a Gab Wireless phone so that you don't have to be tempted by playing video games all day long. I'll try not to do this again. You know, I'll try to be wiser in my choices. So you're saying, I, I'm not, I'll try not to do this again and will you forgive me? So if you model this, and you can even do this even with a little tiny child, a four-year-old, I mean, you can be like, you can say these words to them and they can learn. And so when we can express this and model it, that's really, really going to help them. And then of course, attention, uh, if there's any teachers in the room, you know like, man, I wish these kids would pay attention. Like what has happened to these kids? You know, I, I think of my friend who is a children's pastor and she's like, we used to just say, get in a circle. And they'd get in a circle. <laughs> and she said, now to get in a circle, it's like, that's a 10 minute process. Once you get like this half in the circle, then this half collapses so that you guys get in a circle. It's like, why did you not pay enough attention to even get in a circle? You know? And a lot of it is because think of Mr. Rogers, right? A lot of us grew up watching Mr. Rogers. One person, one camera, talked real slow, talked about life, talked about his neighbors. Did you, oh, you have a hurt, you got something, let's talk. I mean, it was very slow pace. You put a child in front of Mr. Rogers and you just see like how long can they last, like a test, how long can they pay attention and watch Mr. Rogers? Because what is happening now, right? You're watching SpongeBob and like, it's all colors and it's every 10 seconds something's happening and things are blowing up and all these, it's the, it's the triumph of the trivial, right? That we talked about before. And it's keeping kids' attention and it's on purpose. So it's gotten faster and faster. YouTube right, which already has obviously a lot of our kids and a lot of our attention. But people are even commenting that because of TikTok, because things are even shorter, that they'll, like a, a teenager can go to a regular feature length two hour movie and be like, this is so boring <laughs> because they're used to this really quick of TikTok. So everything is getting faster to the kid. Like I gotta get out faster and it's gotta be more frenetic for me to pay attention. And this is a huge problem because it's a self-control issue. Can I control my wandering mind and make it do what I want to do? And one of the best things you can do for yourself and for your children, the children in your church, is to promote reading. Because guess what happens when you read? You slow down, you're thinking, it's much more uh, calming and peaceful and, and that, you know, with a visual, it's just all stimulating. You don't have to think about it very much. You're just a passive watcher. When you're reading, you're more, much more involved. And so if you're thinking, how can I help my child pay more attention? Reading is definitely part of it. 
This is what Nicholas Kars, uh, who wrote The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brain says. When we go online, we enter an environment that promotes cursory reading, hurried and distracted thinking, and supernatural, superficial learning. It's possible to think deeply while surfing the net, just as it's possible to think shallowly while reading a book, but that's not the type of thinking that technology encourages and rewards. And you know this because when you read a book, you can read five pages and be fine. But when you're on the internet and you're reading an article and you're kind of on page two and you're still scrolling, you're thinking, what are you thinking? When is this gonna end? And should I click that banner about the shoes? Okay, <laughs> that's what you're thinking. And so the actual medium encourages a certain amount of participation. So computers in schools, this is just a nightmare, right? So I'm just very glad that my kids got all the way through elementary school without computers in schools. Because the thinking is, oh, if we put the computer in the school, the kids will get smarter, right? Have they gotten smarter? No. They've gotten more distracted. You know, I talked about how Dr. Dimitri Christakis, he is a, a renowned um, pediatrician, and he says, the smarter the toy, the dumber the child. Because the child doesn't have to be smart, right? So if you have a four-year-old, wow, they're brilliant. They can press the buttons. They can swipe. It's like all they can do, they can press the buttons, and they can, but they swipe the right things, or they press the right things, right? The smarter the toy, that computer program is real smart. All the toddler has to do is like press and swipe. But the dumber the toy, it's a set of blocks, right? Very dumb toy. Guess what happens? All of a sudden, voila, a masterpiece. It's the child that has to bring it. Same thing in school, that the, the, the simpler you can get. There's a reason why the Silicon Valley executives send their kids to old-fashioned schools that just use chalkboards. There's a reason for this. And we need to like kind of get smart and get in this mindset. And so just understand that, okay, wait a minute, I'm gonna push back on this whole, like the more computers are in my child's life, the smarter they're gonna get, because I'm not seeing it. And what I'm really gonna focus on is how can I help my child, the children in our church, and maybe it's, it's it's looking at these and, and on purpose thinking, okay, this month we're really working on affection. How can we show love to others? Appreciation, how can we have gratitude? Anger management, okay, kids, you're gonna get angry. These are ways you can deal with it. Apology, this is how we apologize. We use skits, we use different things to show these different skills. Attention, we're gonna see who can sit still the longest, you know? So playing with these things, thinking how can we incorporate, because if we have more kids who have these five A plus skills, that's gonna be so much better for their well-being. And the key is learning from us, right? And that's where it gets kind of tricky, because <laughs> we're like, oh, it's easier for us just to be on our phones and not have to deal with all these screaming children or whatever it is they're doing, right? But they're gonna learn from us. They'd had this study uh, at the University of Washington Professors Andrew Melkoff and Patricia Cool, and they took a baby and the mom, and at just 42 minutes old, the baby was mimicking the mom. The mom would mm, stick out her tongue to the baby, and the baby mm, would try to do it back. At just 42 minutes old, they're already mimicking the parent. And I really believe the best offense we have is the modeled life of a parent who puts relationships first uses a technology as a tool for their work and to enhance their relationships, but has clear boundaries that say, hey, I don't sleep with this, we don't eat meals with this, 
We have times where we're just doing stuff together, where there are no phones involved. We're very intentional about what do we allow ourselves to watch on this? How do we use it? That modeling is the strongest case you can make. And isn't it just like parenthood and leadership that it makes you a better person for having to do it, for knowing, okay, the kids in kids' church are watching me. I couldn't, you know, I had such a hard time when you're, like, the first time I was, went through it in an airplane, and the flight attendant, who's normally there to greet you, right, like, welcome, welcome, can I help you with your bag, right? And I saw her, and she was like this. Like, we all walked past, and she's like this. And then you could think, okay, well, she's probably looking at the seating chart or something. Or doing. But I went past her, and she was on social media, you know? And I'm thinking, like, that is not what you're supposed to be doing. And as parents, as leaders, as pastors, if we can set the example, and really when we are on our phones with our kids, really show them, like, I really am checking a few emails, and I put this down, because guess what? It keeps us more accountable, right? And let them catch you reading. So I love this, totally cracks me up. So my husband's a realtor. So this is him reading Real Estate Matters. Here's Lucy grown up, still a lot of hair. The very, it's, it's very funny, it could be the very hairy princess, but it's the very, very, very fairy princess. But what are we doing? We are reading together, right? And I always love to tell people, even if you don't like to read, if you see your kids like coming down the hall, like fake it, just fake it. Just be like, what are you doing? Oh yeah, and just grab your Bible, grab a book, like, I'm reading, mommy's reading, you know, and then read a page and then, okay, go on your day. But let them show, see you reading. Let them see you do these things and then they will model them themselves. So a question that many people ask is, okay, if we do this, if we focus on the relationship things, if we delay a device, so we delayed devices for sure through junior high, thought about it in high school, and then for our own children, we did not do phones until after high school. So if you have kids, they're talking to you, just be like, whoa, that speaker from San Diego in the public schools, she didn't even let her kids have a phone until they were like going to college, right? So my senior, my girl senior now, uh, we've asked her like, would you like to have a phone? And she says, no. So this can be caught because they get a taste of the freedom that you have when you're not tethered to a phone and they like it. That's what we're trying to give the taste for in our kids. But you think, okay, are my kids gonna get left behind, right? Because they didn't have a phone, they weren't on social media, they didn't play the video game. Will they get left behind? So they did this survey, or research at UCLA, and they took 12 people who never were on the internet and they scanned their brains. And then they took 12 people who are always on the internet and scanned their brains. And indeed, these people's brains look very different. They had like periphery vision, they could make quick decisions, so their brains looked a little different. They had the non-users go on the internet just one hour a day for five days and come back. So they literally surfed the internet for five hours. And after they did that, their brains completely mirrored the, the people that were using it all the time. Technology is very easy to learn. Think of a child given an iPad. You didn't even know it could do that. And all of a sudden they're like watching something. You're like, how'd you do that? I'm asking my kids all the time. How'd you do that? And they don't even have phones, right? But I'll say, how'd you do that on my phone? Because I'll ask them, what am I supposed to do? I like have a roadblock, help me. Technology is really easy for kids to learn. It's gonna get easier. As time goes on, they're just gonna be like, cheese pizza and a drone will like, drop a cheese pizza from the sky. Like, it's not gonna be hard. But think of these A-plus skills that we've learned. Can a child download an app and all of a sudden become affectionate? 
and appreciative and manage their anger and apologize and pay attention. Of course not. This takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. So do not buy the lie that your kid will be left behind. This whole thing is digital and your kid will be left behind. Your kid will be the one who can actually think through problems and not just click buttons, right? So don't worry, your child is gonna have a phone connected to their body from age 18 forward for the rest of their life. They are, it's, that's gonna be reality and that's okay. But let them have a childhood. Let them have teenage years without the craziness of social media. Don't, and not to have an addiction moving forward like, because you know, if you're a smoker, you can get away from your smoking friends. You cannot go by the vaping shop. You can, you, can, you can kick that. But if you're addicted to video games, you gotta carry this thing around your whole life and you have to fight that addiction every day of your life. And that's what kids are being saddled with is that you're gonna have this device. So it's really imperative you learn how to use it well or else that will carry with you all your life. And so this is what we've kind of got to get, like, okay, we got we gotta get, got to get to it. Dr. Jay Geed, he's at UCLA, the National Institute of Mental Health, he says this about teenagers, specifically as they go through puberty. The leading hypothesis is the use it or lose it principle. If a teen is doing music or sports or academics, these are the cells and connections that are hardwired. If they're lying on the couch, playing video games, watching YouTube, these are the cells and connections that are going to survive, right? What they're doing in their teenage years, that's what they're gonna be doing in their 20s. And that's what they're gonna be doing in their 40s. <laughs> what, you know, it's, it's hardwired in their brain, like this is what we do. It's free time, I go to YouTube. I have a few moments, I play this little video game. I, I wanna talk to a friend, I'll just text her. Like it might, a month might go by that we don't even talk or anything. So this, these are the habits being formed. And as believers, we have to say there's much more. Like my kids can have something much greater. So, so my kid Ethan, right, he doesn't play video games. So then you would think, okay, very left out, because what do boys do? They play video games. So we've talked about this, um, and at the end of the presentation, I'll give you a link where you can see like a little documentary of him talking about this in his own words. But he says, you know what, Mom? There are kids at school who will not talk to me because I don't play video games. Like we have absolutely nothing in common and like we'll never be friends. We will never, like I'm never gonna be with these people. But I found that the people who don't care that if I play video games or not, those are the guys that I wanna be friends with. That's the kind of person that I want to be with. And, you know, I was struck with this. I was uh, on an airplane one day and, I, and these two strangers met. They were in their 20s and they both played the same video game and it was, they were very excited. <laughs> so they both sat next to each other. You could tell like they were ethnically different, they're from different parts of the country, but once they had that video game, it was like, it was like you guys coming to this every year. It was just instant connection. They just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. So you think, okay, that's what my son is missing. But then those two men in their lives, there's very little else besides that video game that they can talk about with any kind of intelligence or enthusiasm, <laughs> okay? It becomes your world. And it's the only thing you can talk about moving forward. It's the only thing that gets you motivated. It's the only thing that keeps you going. And that's where the danger is, that as families, we think short-term, well, everybody's playing the video games, better let them play. 
Well, guess what? He's going to be 18, 20, 22. He's going to flunk out of college because all he wants to do is play video games all night. It's just going to get worse when he gets to school. So we have to think, even though we're saying, no, you're not going to be part of this group, we're saying there's a much greater yes of the kinds of opportunities you will have in the future. So we're trying to help our kids not be addicted to their devices, but instead to be able to carry conversations, have eye contact, have physical activities, et cetera. So my son, oh, sorry, so let me go through these. So these are the two books. You, you got Screen Kids yesterday, many of you. I have a companion book called Grandparenting Screen Kids. It's specifically for grandparents, so that might be something you want to look into. And then, um, oh, sorry, I missed one because I wanted to show you. That's the one I want to show you. So Ethan went to college last year, Cal Poly Pomona. These are his two roommates, and I'm happy to say that even though he doesn't play video games, and even though you know he didn't have a phone, like he knew what to do, right? It's like he got a phone before college. He knows how to use it. He's doing okay. And so they, these guys rock climb. They play ultimate frisbee. He goes to crew, which is Campus Crusade with Christ. Like he's having a great time. He's very social. He's doing just fine. So this one's mine, this one in the middle. So you don't have to fear. Your kids, if they grow up different, different in this day and age, you gotta say he's good. Different is really good and we are into different. And really pose it. I know a lot of kids will say, oh, you're in these workshops and you're punishing me, you're punishing me. But to help them say, honey, I am not punishing you. I am, I'm looking out for you. It feels like punishment. And I say it's not punishment, it's protection. And they're like, whatever, you know. But I tell you, in two years, three years, five years, they're going to come back to you and say thank you that you did that. My daughter, Noelle, she's very wise, the one that's a senior in high school. She says, Mom, why does your generation let my generation get away with all this? Like, why don't you do something? Because she sees all her friends, you know, they're depressed. They stay in their room. They're on their phones. They're comparing each other to each other. They're not happy. They have no purpose. What's my purpose in life? What am I going to go do? You know, why doesn't your generation do something to help my generation? And that really, that stays with me, like, to motivate. Like, our generation has to do something to help because that's our job. Like, we are the parents. We are the ones who are supposed to protect. And so... You know, the Happy Home Podcast, I wanted to, to tell you, there's a past podcast with Dr. Andrew Doan. Dr. Andrew Doan, and he was uh, a is a neurosurgeon, was on a full ride to John Hopkins University, but was playing video games 80 to 100 hours a week, was basically a functional addict, like a dry drunk alcoholic, and it almost cost him everything. You know, his wife had a restraining order on him eventually. And the thing that turned him around was when his hands started to shake, because of course, from years of gaming that much, and he thought, I'm a neurosurgeon, like I could lose my, I could lose everything. And so he completely turned around. And he talks about what it cost him. And it's a great listen for anyone who plays games and who just needs help to look towards the future. And so this, um, on happyhomeuniversity.com, I have a, a documentary of my kids talking about, it's called Screen Kids in their own words. It was, we did it in 2020, of my kids just talking about what is it like really being in junior high and high school and not having a phone. So it's something fun that you can show your teenagers and that you can see yourself. I encourage you to do that.